Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. Hello, guys. How are you today? We hope you guys are having a wonderful Sunday. And today we are joined by Penny Walters. And we're doubly blessed because she's joining us live from the UK. So it's <laughs> kind of late in the evening over there. So I'm very appreciative of Penny for, for joining us. Penny is an educator and she's an author. She's also a genealogist, and she's written a wonderful book called Dilemmas and Sorry, Ethical Dilemmas in Genealogy. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. Um, basically ethics and genealogy, kind of good practice, and, and basically things that you should be made aware of. I will admit, Penny, that you know, going through your book, I was like, oh, I kind of should have thought of some of those considerations <laughs> before I threw things in the tree. Um, but I know that Donnie wants to say hello to, to some, well, both of us would like to say hello to some of our audience. So Donnie, who did you want to give a shout out to? Um, I just wanted to say hi to Martha. I just saw Martha Marshall and Janice Gilliard. They're some of our, you know, um, regulars. And I, I, I realized that we stopped doing that. And um, I need our fans to know that we really appreciate them and, and that we, we love them and we love their support and everything. So um, I wanted to briefly just say hello to everybody. They, they And just to let you know, Penny, they are from everywhere. They are from the UK, they're from Denmark, they're from right here in the US. So, you know, hello everybody. I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. I've been really looking forward to it. So I've been ready since about nine o'clock this morning. <laughs> but I had to put my lipstick back on again because it would be on for six hours. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> so what time is it there? Um, it's 9 p.m. in England. Um, so what time is it with you? Four o'clock. Okay. <laughs> not too bad then. No, it's so not that bad. So at 9 p.m. in Britain, I'll probably be watching reruns of um, Inspector Morse. That was, that, was, <laughs> that was a Sunday evening kind of thing to do. <laughs> How did you know about Inspector Morse? That's very good. And one oh, of I'm... my favorites. I love those CSI detective mm -hmm. kind of programs. <laughs> so I know, so I'm going to kind of get stuck straight in because uh, we have a lot to cover in, in an hour. One topic that a lot of our audience has, first of all, this has generated a lot of excitement with our audience, this, this whole topic. As you can yeah. see, I'm a very exciting person. <laughs> <laughs> and... This is me on a Sunday night in England. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing better than I am for 9 p.m. in the evening. One area that a lot of people have been commenting on and they're very excited about is around adoption. So okay. what are some of the ethical considerations that adoptees um, should basically kind of factor into their research? Okay, well, uh, I'm adopted, so that's probably a good place to start from. But um, first of all, can I say that it is a very sensitive subject. So sometimes people say things and you didn't realize that you defended somebody. So um, if I'm going to talk about adoption, it will just be from how I think or how I feel. So um, just to make that clear at the start. Um, so basically, the reason why I got interested in ethical dilemmas 
was that I used to run National No Smoking Day. So hopefully nobody switches off immediately. But um, my job for 12 years was running um, a national day about getting people to stop smoking. But my partner smoked. So I used to go to work every morning feeling really guilty that I was running National No Smoking Day. But going to work probably smelling of cigarettes because my partner smoked. So I became very, very interested in ethical dilemmas because I thought that probably I was being a hypocrite. And my master's dissertation looked at the hypocrisy of me running National No Smoking Day when my partner smoked. And then that developed, I just expanded it into my PhD. So I've always been interested in ethical dilemmas um, in the sense that I didn't want to go to work and be a hypocrite. So um, when I had my first baby, um, whilst I was laying on the bed, covered in blood, thinking I'd died, and there was this little baby, I did spend the time thinking, look at her little eyelashes and look at her little fingernails and look at her little nose and I just couldn't get over how beautiful and amazing this child was and when we look at photos now that wasn't the case at all but um, basically um, I then thought um, did my biological mother after she'd given birth look at my little nose and my little fingers and my pretty eyelashes or whatever it was um, so from giving birth to my daughter that was my trigger for being very interested in being adopted. But up until then, I'd had a really nice life because my parents were quite elderly when they got me and they had always sworn that if they ever did get to adopt a baby, that this baby would be treated like a princess. So treated like a princess, I was. Um, but the problem, I think, with many adopted people is that you may not have anything go wrong during your upbringing. Obviously, some people are um, abused or have problems with their adopted family, but um, many people have a privileged life because these people have been waiting for a baby. But I always felt a bit different. And I can't tell you what the different thing was, but it was in between different and lonely. So I don't know whether my loneliness came from... Um, not having any siblings or my loneliness came from elderly parents um, or what this thing was but there was there's always this inherent loneliness with being adopted even though you're having a lovely upbringing so I couldn't put my finger on anything so basically um, when I had my first baby I then started wondering about my biological mother so the ethical dilemmas lay in the sense that I was about, I think, 23 or 24 or 25, something like this. So by the time I would have been able to start my research, this lady would have probably been in her 50s and already have an established life. So the minute that you decide to look for biological parents, you've immediately hit an ethical dilemma. So hopefully that's asked, answered your question, Ryan. Um, and then if you wanted to know anything more about it, then we can chat about that as well. But my trigger was having my first baby. So wow. when you're talking about um, ethics, are you talking about the possibility of knowing that you could 
be disrupting someone's, as you said, established life or yes. what, kind of, what yeah. were the ethical considerations for you? Well, many, many of the ladies that had to give the baby away or even young girls, because let's not forget that many societies don't want you to have a teenage pregnancy. So my daughter got pregnant when she was a teenager. And as far as I'm concerned, that's absolutely fine. The baby will live with us. And what's the problem? But for many medics and um, people in the hospitals or even social services, a huge discouragement for a teenage girl having a, pregnant, having a pregnancy. So when my daughter was going for antenatal care, every single member of staff was saying, um, did you want to book an abortion or let's talk about abortion? And we, we started getting very fed up with this. So society doesn't want you to have a baby. Um, as a teenager, even though it's quite a natural and healthy period of your life, but it's presumed that it's going to disrupt your education and therefore it will disrupt your ability to make money and be um, a useful member of society. So a lot of these girls had their baby taken from them. So the first thing, the first ethical dilemma, therefore, is that I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror disappointed these days because I've aged but um, I look in the mirror and I think that I'm a nice person and my whole outlook is to just try and be really nice every day so it's a saga and I think it's a major saga in America getting your original birth certificate after you've jumped through I don't know how many hoops the first ethical dilemma for me was that I was given my birth certificate and I didn't know I'd have a different name. Now, the only people by law who are given different names are very hardened criminals. So immediately I got this piece of paper, completely different name, a whole new lady's name and address, and it says unknown father. So it would only be in very dire circumstances that the lady wouldn't know who the father was. So again, that's another ethical dilemma. So you could theoretically immediately go and look for those people. And what I've noticed on some adoption forums is that people find the lady within minutes on social media. Um, so when I looked for my biological mother, the process was much slower and you could have a really good think about it. But these days you can get your original birth certificate and super sleuths as we all are in the genealogy world you could find your biological mother in about 20 minutes which is an accident waiting to happen really wow is there what are what are some of the ways that people can mitigate those um ethical ethical considerations if they're adoptees when they're building their family trees so they found either one or both of their parents and like anyone else who wants to build a family tree, you start with your parents and then their grandparents. Are, yeah. What kind of ways can they kind of support themselves in terms of the information that they add, they add to their trees? It depends whether you'd like to look for living relatives or not. Because if I basically added my biological mother's information to a separate tree. So first of all, you've got two trees now. So my mum was a mine of information. She had a million photos, a million 
birth, deaths and marriage certificates, lots of stories. So my Penny Walters tree is very full and has got all this mine of information on it. My biological tree, even just the first two words, Penny Walters, aren't correct. So I couldn't work out whether to put myself down as Penny Walters or put myself down in my new biological tree mm. as my new biological name, which nobody in the world has ever called me. So you're dithering even as you're putting your own name on a tree. When I did my DNA test a few years ago, about four or five years ago, I was advised to put my DNA test on my biological tree because biologically I'm related to people through DNA. And although I've had the company of my family for 50 years, biologically I'm not attached to those people. So I've right. got my Penny Walters tree and then I've got my biological tree. So if you want to look for your biological parents, I think that you have to think really very, very carefully about how you approach the person. Um, starting your um, contact with DNA doesn't lie is not going to go down very well. Um, if you approach your biological mother, she has probably subdued all thoughts of you for the however many years old you are. So you will come into her mind but she would have had to have got on with her general daily life. She couldn't wake up crying every morning. So she'd have to get on with her life. And it might be a hideous shock. Some people would have given the baby away because that was their life decision. Some people, the baby was removed. So you've got immediately a different scenario that you're going to be dealing with. And sadly, some ladies might not have had consensual sex. So I had imagined that it was a young unmarried couple and that society had got in the way. But for some people that are adopted, there might have been the situation that the baby wasn't conceived consensually or might even been the result of a family member. So you are opening up a can of worms with this situation. And also, some young men might not have known they even had a baby. So the biological mother knows she gave birth, so she could be expecting that situation to arise. But the biological father doesn't always know. And I do see some people verging on being a bit cheeky or rude when they're approaching people. Um, and you do have to try and think about it. So I just imagine how would I feel if somebody approached me? So if you're looking for living relatives, that's the first hurdle. Another hurdle or an ethical dilemma for me is that I was matching with third cousins. So as soon as I match with a third cousin, they will email me or message me or I message them. Oh, hi, we're third cousins. Can we collaborate? And my first sentence has to be, I'm more than willing to collaborate. However, I was adopted, so I haven't got any anecdotal information. Some people will even block you. Some what? people will have a chat. But if you connect with third cousins, you could perhaps develop a collaboration. Second or first cousins, they may well know your biological parents. 
So again, you have to make it very clear to the people that you're collaborating with. I think I'm really nice, but maybe my biological mother has kept this a secret all these years. So again, you have to keep explaining yourself, you know? And the flip side of that. So, we've, you know, we've spoken a little bit from an adoptee's point of view. Yep. Is, are there ethical considerations for, okay, say, you know, an adoptee put, creates their tree and they put their information up there and they get contacted by family members, you could say first, second or third cousins. Are there ethical considerations for those people to have in mind when they're, when they're actually contacting an adoptee? Um, some people will be very kind and very understanding. So my first sentence is, um, yes, it's going to be great to collaborate. I see that we share X, Y, and Z centum organs, and it looks like you're my second, third, fourth cousin. However, please be aware that maybe my biological mother doesn't want to have this secret revealed. So the other person is put in a slightly awkward position because in the previous messages, they were really pleased to chat to me. Um, also, um, and I was quite tearful the other day, which you might think is a bit childish, but somebody had, I found myself on somebody else's tree. So I thought, oh, I'm on somebody's tree, how exciting. But they'd put the word adopted in brackets. And then I suddenly felt a bit tearful. And then I thought, oh, get a grip, Penny, stop being so childish. But I wasn't quite sure why they'd put a label on me. So um, Penny Walters adopted, <laughs> you know, um, it just kind of smacked me in the face a little bit, really. Um, somebody else had super sleuthed my, my original biological name and had put me in their tree with my biological name, which I wasn't sure about that either. But um, I haven't been able to put myself in those people's shoes just yet but what would you do then what, what about you Donya if you had um, an adult I mean my it, it, okay so I'm I'm so not the right person I like <laughs> I'm I'm the one I really don't I'm learning from you today and um because I don't have like I have some personal issues that are going on right now that I can't necessarily put out here but yeah. I, I'm definitely listening to you when it comes to this. And um, I'm glad that Brian asked the question that he did as far as what about the other person and how are they doing it? it, it but it, it's still getting really, I don't, I mean, I'm blunt. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to come straight out and ask you or go come straight out and say to you, okay, this is, this is where we are. I'm not rude but I'm blunt. So I will say I've been researching for so many years. You know, my first sentences is that, that normal spill of, of genealogist, but um, I will come straight out and tell you why I'm contact. And um, if I can imagine there, what there, about you, Brian? Well, I'm just thinking that in my mind, there are equally um, similar circumstances. So we're talking about adoption. But we could equally be speaking about a person who is a result of a non-paternity event or the product of a non, you know, a, an extramarital liaison or even yes. a, or even informally fostered as, as an infant or a child. Right. Those were all very kind of similar, similar things. Yeah, they, um, they're all similar scenarios. Yes, I agree. So you, and um, some adopted people don't know that they're adopted. So 
I've been in some forums where people, when their parents have died, have under the bed, you know, when you find the box of photos under the bed, found their original birth certificate. Mm -hmm. So it can be a hideous shock, really. But um, I think that DNA testing is really exposing people. It's exposing people with relationships. It's exposing people with ethnicities. Um, and mm. we all have to wonder where do secrets and lies um stop or start you know so uh i my guideline is that i try really really hard not to do anything that i would be offended by mm -hmm. so i'm just trying to picture if i had a husband who did a dna test and a child messaged him on facebook saying um i've done a dna test and you're my father what are you going to do about that then because this might have been a liaison at college or it might have been um, a situation that's happened 40, 50 years ago. So, um, and as soon as you've broken this news, you can't go back at all. Mm -hmm. So if I said to you, do you like my blue jumper? You might say, well, looks okay, but I prefer you in the green one, Penny. Or, you know, it, nobody's going to die from that. But if you reveal um, that there are adoptions or non-paternity events, um, or rapes or fostering or even which used to happen two generations ago the grandma would bring up the baby so um sometimes people don't realize that their sister is their mum. so there's definitely nice and kind ways of doing it um and if you keep beating around the bush then obviously it's going to cause confusion so you do need to be clear but i'm a blunt person as well and i'm very two plus two is four but because of my situation as an adopted person, I've had to step back. And my trick is that I never send a message or an email to tree or DNA matches until I've read it two or three times. I will sometimes even go and get a cup of tea and come back because I also talk too much. And sometimes when you're liaising and collaborating with people online, you can talk too much. So I would say, um, oh, I've got six children and I live in Bristol and um, I've just had such and such for dinner and blah, 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 and blah, 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 you know, um, and it becomes verbal diarrhea. So the person could track you down quite quickly. And we have to have a think about privacy and confidentiality, therefore. Very good. Well, um, I, I wanted to ask a question real quick, Brian, because there was something in on our on our, we have a lot of people who have dealt with adoption. I'm reading the comments as we go through. And um, one of the things that was brought out was the fact that um, by Janice Gilliard, she said that her oldest daughter was adopted. But then further down, she talked about how they told her at two years old. So yeah, yeah. I know with, with my personal situation and some things that my mother told me, I actually agree with what Janice was saying to know that stuff ahead of time to learn certain things ahead of time um it actually makes a big difference do you think or do you believe that if you had known things ahead of time would you be able to wrap your mind around stuff better and would you be able to as far you know be able to avoid the ethical dilemma that we're discussing yeah, yeah. you know well, my parents told me when I was about three um, and they said to me, 
um, we want to sit down and have a chat with you um, because we want to talk to you that um, we got you from somewhere. So I don't remember all the conversation, obviously, you know, I was three, but I always knew that my parents had got me from somewhere. And I started imagining it was some kind of supermarket. So when I asked my mum <laughs> one day, um, you know, you're choosing this baby. So I said to my mum, how did you get me get? So she said to me, you were the prettiest one in the place. And that's why we got you. Oh. So I woke up every morning thinking that I was the chosen one and that I'd been chosen because I was the prettiest one. So that's absolutely fantastic. So I used to wake up every morning feeling really pretty and I was treated like a princess and just used to, oh, you know. So basically I was a princess. However, when you start getting romantic or sexual feelings, you start realizing that you don't get babies, you conceive them. So when I asked my mum, you know, so you've said that you got me from somewhere. Firstly, where is this place? And secondly, somebody else had conceived me. So she just clammed up and didn't want to talk about that situation and was broken, absolutely broken that I'd even asked her that question. So they'd brought me up for 16 years and it was a hideous smack in the face for me to ask where my biological parents were. So I learned never to mention that again. Um, but I do know people that are told when they're in their puberty, when they are teenagers, when they're getting married, when they find out by accident, when there's a hideous health scare or you need a kidney transplant or a blood transfusion. Um, in your worst moments, you can sometimes find out that these aren't your biological parents or one isn't your biological parent. And um you have to have a little think about that. But I don't know, Donya, if you've ever had an affair, but um, if you could ever imagine having to pluck up the courage to say to your partner, um, oh, just to let you know, um, you know, you'd, you'd be stuttering and stammering for weeks or months and there's always somebody that's going to dob you in. But um, it's really, really very hard to find that right time. And I think if you leave it past ages three or four or five or you know when do you tell somebody so I know right. that there's middle-aged people out there that didn't know that they were adopted or that those weren't their biological parents so I would advise the younger the better but mm -hmm. somebody else might say no yeah and to answer the question you asked um funnily enough I have had that so I've had a scenario where DNA cousins popped up out of the ether and I immediately, and they were the product of an extramarital relationship. Uh, sorry, their their mother was the result of an extramarital relationship. But I immediately knew who the person, who the, the man involved was. And they knew. I could tell by the records that he had. So I just, um, I thought about it for a day. And then I just reached out to them, to the three, um, three DNA cousins. I explained who I was. It's like, I know who your biological grandfather is. Um, if you have any questions about the family, if you'd like to see photographs, anything like that, um, just let me know, happily give you my telephone number, my email address. It's like, I appreciate this must be a lot for you to kind of process. So I'm leaving it with you. It's like, I'm here. Yep. When you're ready, let me know.
and they, you know, and they haven't, it's been three years now, they, they've never been in touch. But I felt because people have denied me records and information about my family, not in an adoption sense or, or anything like just basic genealogy, yeah. genealogical courtesy, I'm very mindful about not withholding information from other people. So I just wanted them to, to let them know that um, I knew. And if they had any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer them. But I guess they, they don't. And I think that's probably the best, the best that you can do. Well, I think the other issue is um, when a person doesn't know and then they find out and from someone else, like Brian was saying, I mean, I had a family member who really went through it and like, she's angry with everybody now. So um, she's angry with everybody. And and it, and yeah. you, you the the thing is is that when DNA comes into play, and like you said, DNA doesn't lie, and you don't want to say that to them. But in the same instance, you come, you start to find out all this information, and you have to point out that the DNA is in is in the is in the place. This is why you're yeah. where you are because of the DNA, and we need to figure this out, or we need to talk about how this came to pass, you know, where it is. And um, you just have people, how do you deal with those that when they find out and then they're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? You know, they're coming. And that could be not just adoption. We're talking about um, race and ethnicity. We're talking nationality. We're talking about um, an opportunity event. We're talking about everything when it comes to that. All of that is considered an ethical dilemma. So my question to you is we had a lady on one of our groups who actually, and I don't know if she made it on the show, if she's um, watching, but I really wanted to know the answer to this. <laughs> so um, she actually uh, had an issue where she did some research. She was a white woman who did some research for an African-American person. And she came across a, um, a whole plantation of females who were enslaved, nothing but females. So the possibility of her coming across a breeding a farm a breeding farm was was it. She doesn't know how to tell the person that she's researching that her that person's ancestor may have come from a breeding farm. She's you know I get it because I have a two times great grandmother who was a breeder, so I know that there are people out here that I won't know unless they do the DNA. And then we have to go through the work. How does how does someone who is just doing something for someone else just come out and say, "Hey, yeah, about your great great grandparent or your ancestor, they may have been a breeder." Especially when people don't know a lot about breeding or don't think breeding exists. That's a serious thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what are your um, thoughts? I'm not sure uh, what the best uh, advice would be, but basically. Um, I always try and put myself in the other person's position and just really wait until I've thought it through. So, for example, I was helping somebody who didn't know who his biological father was. And I discovered quite quickly that the biological father was dead. So this person has been trying to find his biological father for 25 years and he's died relatively recently. So we've missed that boat. It's hideous. So I spent ages and ages. It was 
probably three weeks where I was going to bed every night thinking, what am I going to say to this man? Anyway, um, I what I did in the end, and this might be useful in your situation, is I asked the person, what advice would you give to somebody in that scenario? So sometimes I will use the scenario that I would like to talk about, but then I say, what would you do in that position? So I would say to the person whose father's died, if you were helping somebody with a DNA test and you found out that their father had died, would you tell them immediately? So that person would then say, it's better to just, you know, pull the pull the plaster off the scab quickly or oh, I don't think I'd tell them that. So to answer your question, Donya, what you could perhaps do is bring up a discussion about this hideous situation so that the person has got the opportunity to discuss this. And then you might want to ask them, what would you do in the situation if this had happened to your friend? So you might say to me, Penny, um, I've watched a documentary recently about the hideous situation where women who were enslaved were being forced to breed. And then if I started crying or I got upset or I spoke about it um, in a certain way, you could then ask me the question, oh, what would you do if you knew that somebody had a descendant from that situation? So then I would give you my feeling about how I would explain that to this other hypothetical person. So I often do that. If ever I've got some unexpected or some bad news, I talk generally about the topic to the person and then I ask them a specific question. How would you tell somebody else that information? So um, I'm not sure how that would work with the example that you've given. Um, many of these situations that we are finding are filling us with anger. And you mentioned that your adopted friend is angry. Um, I would imagine that some people feel like a truck has hit them. I don't know how you come back from it. So, um, yeah, that's my thoughts. I guess <laughs> what do you think, Brian? I'm thinking maybe one way is to maybe she could, the researcher could dip her toe in the water to say, how open are you to receiving difficult information? I found something that I think you're going to be upset by. How, you know, how do you want me to actually explain it or tell you about it? I, cause I get that as I'm got a lot of paid research going on at the moment and I don't, intentionally set out to find African-Americans, white ancestors, but when we're talking about slavery, the chances are high. And from the outset, even before I started researching, and yeah. specifically in the place where this person's ancestry was, I did tell them there were a lot of enslavers who had children with their enslaved women, and that you may actually descend from such a union. And she's like, oh yeah, she's like, well, I kind of expected that, just yeah, whatever yeah. you find, put it in the report. But I try to front load my research by that by those kind of caveats. That's a really useful um, suggestion. Um, for example, I was helping a friend with a tree and her grandfather was very elderly when he got married, very elderly. So I said to her, 
Um, if your grandfather has got married very elderly, the chances are that he's already had a first wife, mm -hmm. in which case he might well have had children with that first wife. Mm -hmm. Would you like to know about that? So she said, oh, yes, that's absolutely fine, Penny. So another thing which might divide us is how many generations ago was it? So it doesn't in any way denigrate the hideous things that have gone on in the past, hideous. But if something hideous happened four or five or six generations ago, maybe it would break your heart in a slightly different way to it's happened one or two generations ago. So sometimes that generation gap can um, not be as painful. So I have got pain from being an adopted person. I've got this inherent loneliness, this inherent um, I was given away. So I've got inherent feelings, which none of my children have got those feelings because my adoption hasn't affected them. They've been brought up, hopefully, by a, a loving mother. Um, how you would feel about somebody that was raped one generation ago or somebody that was raped five generations ago, maybe you could contextualize that with the hideous things that were going on in that time. Maybe not. I had a biological um, ancestor about five generations ago who died after giving birth. And even now, when I look at that woman in my tree, I, I can feel tearful and hot and can't breathe. So that was five generations ago and she died giving birth. So how I'd feel about somebody that um, was the product of a rape or an incest or an enslaved ancestor, I'm not even sure. And DNA is opening a lot of these things. And actually, none of us are counsellors. Um, me and Donya are very blunt. We're very two plus two is four kind of people. But when you're giving bad news or unexpected news, you do have to step back quite far, really, and um, have, a, have a much longer think about what you're going to say. Yeah, um, I know that for for me, when I do pay research and things, I don't do it as often as Brian does. But when I do the paid research, one of the things, even in the, the consultation for me, I come straight out from the very onset and I'm like, okay, listen, this is what's about to happen. These are the, the these are the, the possible things that can happen. I need to know if you want to know them. I need to know the direction you want to go. That way it, because again, my bluntness is really bad. So because I'm, my bluntness is bad, I need to know what I need to say to you from the beginning before. And then I also try to warn people ahead of time, if you're going to step into the DNA realm, you need to understand what it is doing. Just because you're looking at it on Ancestry, 23andMe or one of the four major sites, and all they're talking about is ethnicity, understand that this is just like a paternity test. Yeah, they yeah, need yeah. to understand that that's what it, it it is just like that. And um, well, so something with ethnicity testing as well. So I've got mixed race children whose grandfather came from Jamaica. So when I did my DNA test, bearing in mind I'm adopted, my DNA test came back as predominantly Irish. So I was overjoyed because this is a really exciting thing. I'm adopted. 
I'm Mrs. English and oh my God, my DNA is predominantly Irish. How exciting. Anyway, I couldn't work out why all my Irish ancestors were living in South Wales. So due to the restrictive history lessons that we have, I had never understood about the Irish potato famine. So I'm running around squealing, I'm Irish, how exciting. And actually from my city to Ireland, it's only 45 minutes on the aeroplane. So, and it was 30 or 40 pounds, like less than $50. So I basically jumped on the aeroplane and ran around squealing in Ireland. I'm Irish and honey, I'm home. And the average person must've been thinking, who's this nutter? Anyway, so the point I'm making is that I'm English. I've got Irish ethnicity and I hadn't understood the pain, the devastation and the hideous situation, which is the Irish potato famine. So after I did my DNA test, my daughter, my eldest daughter said to me, does that mean that I will be half of your Irishness and will the DNA test reveal my, uh, how black I am? So I said, I don't even know, because this was about five years ago. I said, I've got no idea. Let's have a look. My granddaughter at the same time wanted to know, um, she said, I've got Chinese eyes. Where have these Chinese eyes come from? Will that come out in the DNA test? I said, listen, you're asking the wrong person. I've got no idea. I've just done one DNA test and I found Irish ethnicity. So when my daughter's DNA test came back, it said Nigeria. So my children were saying, this is a load of rubbish. Nigeria, who's... <laughs> We've never been to Nigeria. So they hadn't comprehended the implications of having a Jamaican grandfather, but Nigerian DNA. So all my children, when I said, this is implying that your father who's from London, your grandfather who's from Jamaica, three or four generations before that, it looks like there's an enslaved Nigerian person. That information broke them because although they've looked at slavery in school, this is a million years ago. This wasn't actually 150 years ago. It was a long, long time ago, not thinking that it was actually only four or five generations ago. So to tie in with what you were saying, Donya, um, some of these ethnicities, when it's being revealed, are a big shock and are implying something else. So my Irish ethnicity is revealing the Irish potato famine and the genocide that went on in Ireland. And my children's Jamaican grandfather has got Nigerian DNA, in which case that is revealing another hideous story, which it takes a lot of effort to discuss all of these issues. And if you ask my children, what ethnicity are you? One might say English, because we're born in England. One might say mixed race. One might say black. One might say African. One might say Jamaican heritage. So actually your, your ethnicity also starts affecting your identity. Right. So there are three things that I really struggle with, and those were all really excellent points, Penny, by the way. Incest, insanity, murder. Incest, 
you can figure out in my tree just based on just how the two people connect. And I just want to clarify by incest, I don't mean first cousins. I mean aunts Period. with nephews, uncles, with nieces, whatever. I mean yep. incest. Insanity, again, I don't, that may not be relative, it may not be easily identifiable in my tree, but if I have a record, it's on there. You know, because that explains why someone seemingly just disappeared off the face of the earth. They didn't. They were in a mental institution. And Donnie and I, in particular, come from an area that is renowned for its, back in the day, for its murder rate. Because it was just really violent. It was just a very violent place. Yeah, well, I don't really, but in terms of ethical considerations, I really don't know how to not deal with it, but present it in a more ethical fashion, if, if that's even possible. It might be that these were signs of the times. So my grandmother's best friend was put in a mental institution because she got pregnant at 16. And you'd have to be crazy to be getting pregnant at 16. She stayed in that mental institution. So there was nothing mad about her. She had a romantic, confused situation with her boyfriend. So they were boyfriend and girlfriend. They got in a muddle and she got pregnant. And the authorities dragged her into a mental institution, gave her drugs, tied her up, more than likely beat her. So when you look at criminals, you have to really look at what is a criminal. If you drive at 32 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone, you're a criminal. The police stop you. If you um, forget to pay for some sweets as you're walking around a shop, that's theft. So I think some of the things that you were talking about mix in very, very much with poverty and also with the times as they were. So, for example, if I feel fed up, I could go to the doctor and be called depressed. Maybe I am clinically depressed. Maybe I'm just really fed up or maybe I've got some hormonal imbalance. Um, If I go to one doctor, I'd be given drugs. If I go to another doctor, I'd be offered counselling. So women are often labelled as depressed. Um, Children that are struggling um, with relationships could be called um, um, autistic or to have ADHD. And in previous times, these would have been given other labels as well. Probably not even 50 years ago, you could have been in a mental institution with homosexuality. This was considered a mental illness up until quite recently. So some of the mental illnesses that your family may well have suffered from, Brian, might not have even been mental illnesses. It would just have been that they were misunderstood or they were artistic or they got pregnant at 16 or they were bigamous or they had a hormone imbalance. Um, The same with, um, um, so you said crime um, as well. Like murder. Yeah. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, I think I'll be a criminal today or do you know what? I'm going to go and murder somebody. I think that the many murders are um, fits of temper and somebody has a hideous accident. And then in other situations, you've got people that have planned it. So the accidental murders and the planned murders are very, very separate issues. And I think we have to be very careful when we're judging people with there, but for the grace of God, go I. So you might have been in a situation where you've had a big argument, you've slapped the person. 
if they fall badly and hit their temple, they're dead. There are other situations where people are abused every day and don't die. So I think that um, murder and criminality and these kind of things um, are in a major way a product of the labeling that we are giving to people and definitely a product of the time. Many people in Australia are descended from um, criminals that were transported. When you get their record, they stole a loaf of bread. Why do you steal a loaf of bread? Because uh, you're hungry. So, you know, <laughs> you know, so um, nobody steals food because they're bored. You only steal food because you're hungry. Um, if you steal a diamond ring, that's a different ball game. Stealing food, you're hungry. Stealing a jacket. You're, you're cold. cold, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we did have one question up here. It, it was really about more so about the breeding. Um it's really crazy to me how we're not it's it's hard to understand why some there are some people who don't know about breeding and then there's some that do know about breeding but still trying to figure all of it out so I wanted to answer Jen Lu's question she asked me how did I know some that my my particular person was a breeder I know for me there's a there's this chart and I'll, I'll find the link and give it to you guys again but they talk about the cost of a woman during that time period and it, it's the cost um of how much they were worth that shows you that they were doing something extra in so many yeah. words i'm trying to kind of be I believe the phrase was prime, either a prime woman or a prime right. prime breeder. Yeah, you had the prime man and the prime woman, and those were the ones that were able to. They had the the body, the look, the weight. They, you know, they were perfect people to create another perfect enslaved person to do the work that they wanted done. My two mm-hmm. times great grandmother by herself sold for over twelve hundred dollars. This was one of the reasons why they assumed that it is it is assumed that she was a breeder and it's actually coming to pass because I have people on my tree that I absolutely don't know how or why they are connecting to my mom and they're connecting to her closely because that's only my mother's great-grandmother and we have no idea. I think there's a similar situation, um, not exactly the same by any means, um, but a somewhat similar situation during Nazi Germany um, where um, Aryan women were forced to have babies and those babies were removed. Hmm. So not the same, but a similar situation during um, that time. We're giving it another makes you example. really, really wonder why people do things to other people, but um, we can't answer that question tonight, that's for sure. But um, yeah. Or to give another example, my ancestor, Lewis Matthews, was a male breeder. And we know that because it's hinted at in things that are written about him. But he had, so far we found, I found about 30 of his children that he had by about six or seven different women all over the place. Mm -hmm. The other thing with Martha is we know she had more children than what we found. Mm-hmm. Her other children aren't living with her. We don't even think they're in the same county. 
Mm -hmm. So her father, who was also her enslaver, mm -hmm. and her pop brother were selling her kids. Yeah. They were selling their own grandchildren. And remember this, that one, I don't, um, that Loretta and I was doing, you know, we ended up finding out that there is another child. There is another girl out there. I think it was one or, or two daughters in that, in that other document that we found just recently. Two. I think it was two. two. It's two more girls. We don't know who they are. We don't have a name or anything because no name was listed, but we ended up finding another document that pushed us to see something's missing. Something's not right. Is it her daughter's? Is it hers? Is it, you know, so yeah, those are the things that we're, we're definitely finding out. But one person up here, um, Stacy Ashmore, she said, one thing I struggle with is whether to put criminal records on trees when I discovered them for people who live between 1880 and 1900. Because we don't have the 1890 census, this might be the only record that could locate the person during that time. I'm going to tell you, I'm I'm putting everything on my tree. And at this point in my researching world, in my research in life, if you are not ready for it, then I suggest you not look at my tree. And, I, and I'm being very, I'm like I said, I'm being very honest. Yeah. When I say that, I tell my family that you're either going to look at it or you're not. You're either going to be a part of it or you're not. But in order for us to move forward, because we had too much endogamy going on in our families back then, whether they knew it or not, we know it now. And the best way to fix it is to see it, in my opinion. And that's so you get on my tree. Know what you're about to look for. Know what you're about to see. Yeah. And I, I, that's that's just what I tell them. I, I let them know all the time. Now, I may be ethically wrong, probably, but... <laughs> the interesting thing about ethics is there aren't any rights or wrongs. So if I said to you, I'm adopted, should I look for my biological mother? Brian might say, yes. You know, the woman might be desperate to find you. Donya might say, oh, no, that's a can of worms. If I said to you... Um, should I tell my friend her dad died last week? Brian might say yes, Donna might say no. So in that sense, there aren't any rights and wrongs. And um, we've all got our own moralities, which are based on how we've been brought up. If you've been brought up by two abusive, drug-addicted parents, you're going to have different continuums and rights and wrongs to other people. If you've got um, certain things in your life. So for example, when my daughter um, got herself in a pickle as a teenager, I, there was no question that we were adopting that baby because I had been adopted and I wanted to keep that family with us. So I fought to um, not have any arguments about that situation with that baby. So basically, um, I always think, and I think this is quite a nice metaphor, um, I, I only put on my tree what I wouldn't be shocked to find out about myself. So I also put on my tree things that happened probably more than 100 years ago so that it's not directly hurting somebody that's alive. But if I said to you now, Donya and Brian and Penny, um, can I see you naked? you'd probably be a bit horrified because in certain outfits, you look quite nice. And for certain people, seeing you naked is fine. But the average person probably wouldn't want to see that. So um, 
if you are making people naked on your tree, it's very exposing. And I've got things that would take quite a while for me to open up to somebody. So my rules are kind of if it's more than 100 years or I wouldn't mind seeing that about myself. So I wouldn't mind seeing my speeding tickets on Ancestry in 100 years time. But um, I'm not sure about rapes or murders or this kind of thing. A lot of people in Australia, when we've had a similar discussion to this, have said that in their war records, lots of young men um, went to see prostitutes and ended up with um, venereal diseases. And this information is on their health record. So I'm not sure if I'd like to see that on somebody's tree, that your great granddad had an STD. So, yeah, so that's my those are my parameters about 100 years. And anything that I wouldn't mind seeing about myself goes on my tree. What about you, Brian? Um, so I was going to say really boiled down. It's about empathy and putting yourself in someone else's kind of shoes. I guess for me, I'm somewhere between being very filtered and being forthright with Donia. My, my family tree is also a tree that if you can't handle the truth, you probably should not check it out. Yes, yeah, right. Um, especially as I, I use a methodology for my enslaved ancestors, ancestors called the Beyond Kin methodology. So you have an enslaver, you have the enslaver's records, like uh, in the state inventory, I will list I will put the estate inventory as a pseudo spouse and then all of the enslaved people individually as their children. Because again, with my family, most of the people who enslaved my family are also my ancestors. So it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. Hopefully through lines will give me some avenues to research, not, you know, not accepting that what it's saying is correct, but give me research avenues and white relatives will find that very shocking. Um, I've had right. people tell me that it's very shocking. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but this is also my ancestor and your fragility does not over, you know, does not dominate over my right to know where my people came from. Exactly. And then, you know, someone else put up here, talked about, you know, the therapy may be needed for it. But unfortunately, in the specifically in the um, Black community, in the Black culture, they don't go to therapy. So you have to, you know, um, Walter Curry talked about transparency is, is mandatory. And it really is. You have to be as transparent as possible when you're talking about these different situations. Um, but Penny, I, this was an awesome, awesome conversation. And um, we're going to have to have you back and maybe even go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I've sat in on a few of your debates now, and it's a really fascinating forum. Very nice and very interesting to have a debate. Um, but I think that um, in conclusion, there aren't any rights or wrongs. So um, I also sometimes, you know, when you go to bed and your head is spinning around because you can't find the solution, and then sometimes in the morning it all appears very clear, also, when I speak to my best friends about any of my problems, sometimes they've got worse problems. So with ethical dilemmas, you really need to have a debate because if somebody gives me the opposite opinion to the one that I've got in my heart, then 
I think I really admire that person and mm, I, I've, I've really had a little think now about their points of view. So with ethical dilemmas, I think that you need to remember that there aren't any rights or wrongs. It's all on a continuum that time and history, um, morality, even religion have changed over the years. And that when you have a big discussion such as this, you can start to see other people's points of view because sometimes people have been brought up in a very closeted situation. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again. Go ahead, Brian. No, go ahead. Um, yeah, I wanted to thank you again for definitely being on our show. Um, I wanted to do a brief, just very quickly to remind everyone that we will be doing our um, first book club on the House of Bondage. And that's going to be the 31st of January. Am I correct, Brian? So we will, it's the House of Bondage. You can find the link on the on the event show, on the event um, link, or at, and when you find that link there, you can actually go and read the book online, or you can go order it from Amazon real quickly. However, no post office is quickly. So right now with this, this, you know, holiday season. So I really suggest you definitely get the book. Um, again, it's called House of Bondage. Um, we're going to put links to your book as well. Oh, I've got oh, two actually. Yes, we will definitely put the links up. By coincidence, they're behind me. <laughs> I see them. I, we see them. But yes, so, definitely. Um, yeah, if, if people could get those and put some food in my fridge for my six children, that would be great. <laughs> so it's the psychology of searching. And the psychology of searching is saying, why are you even doing a tree? Are you looking for yourself or lo looking for other people? And then the ethical dilemmas in genealogy is looking at a variety of the things that we've looked at today. And I'd welcome people to email me or send me a message on Facebook about it as well. So thank you. Thank you so much. So thank you for your time and dropping your knowledge. Next That's week, fine. everyone, again, Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be chatting with introducing the Reclaim the Records organization. Um, and again, there's more information about that in the events tab on the Genealogy Adventures uh, Facebook page. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing all of this knowledge with you. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. And you guys have a really great, great Sunday evening. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.